I want to take just the first few moments uh, of our session today to remind us of some key thoughts that we started with last week. And the reason for that is, and and I'm going to do this quite often, last week was the framework for everything that we're going to be dealing with, with this issue of suffering and how God not only redeems our time of suffering, but actually redeems and saves His people in the midst of suffering. So I want to go through a few of the things that we talked about very briefly, and then we'll move on, but to reset that structure in our minds, because it's been a week and you've probably slept since last Sunday, right? So um, the first thing we established last week... Let's not kid ourselves. Let's not believe false teachings, false theologies. In this life, there will be suffering. No one escapes seasons of suffering during this life. It falls on the righteous. It falls on the unrighteous. It's not about sin, the lack of sin, suffering. We live in a fallen world that is being redeemed but is not yet redeemed. So suffering's there. So let's deal with it. And let's, let's learn how to cling to God and remain to Him, remain in Him in those times. We made the point that without God in the midst of a suffering existence, then all suffering that a person goes through lends itself to further brokenness, further dysfunctions in their lives, and so on. But when we put God in, not when we put God in, acknowledging that God is in our suffering, the whole game changes and we're able to receive a truth that I mentioned to you that one church father said last week, that suffering is the fountain of renewal and salvation. Suffering is the fountain of renewal and salvation. And we looked at what we had on the top half of the board from the box up here. And I challenged us all to grasp this understanding that both creation and its timeline, the timeline in the Holy Scriptures and the way that they're written and given to us, the timeline of our existence as Christians, it looks like this. Again, in the beginning, God created a perfect place. There was no suffering It was designed for God to constantly be sharing Himself with mankind that He created so that we would be one with Him and grow to be like our Creator, our Father. We had intimacy. We had union. We chose away from that union. And the fall occurred. And now we have this great gap that you see in the timeline of God with His people. The gap between that intimacy and living in a fallen world. At the same time, what is God's heart always? God's heart always is to restore intimacy. To bridge the gap of union once again. So that we have Him and He has us. You know, I thought about this after last week. Talk about God's desire for intimacy. What is the church called? The bride of Christ. Do you get any more intimate than that in language? Of what God's desire is for every one of us. Okay? 
So he's always bringing us back to that union. Genesis all the way through Revelation follows this story. Garden, intimacy, fall. All of God's works in between in the Old Covenant with the fulfillment in the New Covenant bringing us back to union. We heard that scripture in Revelation describing in the end what that union looks like. That intimacy restored once again in the book of Revelation. And the other thing we likened it to was the fact that we are always moving as children in relationship to God to grown sons and daughters of the living God. We grow from this Torah, God's law, existence, where all we see God as is the maker of rules. Remember what the Torah law looked like. If you obey, blessings. If you disobey, discipline. And we liken that to rearing children. When they're young, this is good. The Torah, the law, was never to be considered bad or weak. It was what it had to be for where God's people were then. Just like when our children are little, we have to have these rules and regulate. You do this, I'm going to give you this gift. You don't do this, you're not going to like the gift. Right? Okay? So we have boundaries that we set. But God, all along, it's as if He's screaming, I'm more than this, and I want to bring you to more than this. Because I don't, I want to give you a construct that keeps you in me so that you grow to maturity so that now you come to know me, not just about me. And that journey we talked about from garden to final intimacy union with him, from Genesis to Revelation, from childhood to maturity in Christ and experienced union and fellowship with the living God. This in-between where you see all of these dots... We called it the wilderness. The wilderness. The journey. It is a journey from one place to another. A journey of growth. Okay? And in the wilderness, there's going to be suffering. And as we discussed last week, why is it that in times of suffering, we are awakened to who God is so much more than when times are great? Because in times of suffering, not only are we in pain, that's true. But that discomfort creates in us a desperation for Him. (coughs) Where we don't have that. When times are all nice and easy and everything's going well. In times of suffering, we tend to cry out for help if we do it the right way. And the key to understanding how to know God in the midst of that wilderness journey is this word, learning how to lament learning how it is that we should voice ourselves, present ourselves to God, cling to Him for every moment in, of life in those times of great suffering. We need to learn this lost language. And by language, we're not just talking about words. I want you to understand that. When we talk about learning the lost language of lament, it's not just the words, but it's the posture of our hearts, our minds, and how we approach God during times of suffering. And so today, what we focus on is this. I want us to talk about the wilderness journey. And I want us to see some things that I pray and I think will be very helpful both to recognize in the past in our lives how we've gone through times of suffering in a wilderness. But we can also maybe recognize what God did in those times much more clearly. 
and be moved for, toward further suffering, if that's the case, to know how to walk with them even close, much more closely. So to try to come to an understanding of our wilderness journey, I really want us to look at the Hebrews' wilderness journey. I want us to learn a few things from their journey with God and their interactions with God when they were in the wilderness. By that, by that wilderness journey, you know, what I'm talking about is from the time that they were released from hundreds of years of slavery under Pharaoh. And God brought them into the wilderness. And we'll get to this statement again, but remember the statement that he, that he had Moses tell Pharaoh, let my people go that they may do what in the wilderness? Worship me in the wilderness. We'll get to that statement again. But let's start while the Hebrews are still in Egypt, enslaved. And this is the time where God would voice through the burning bush to Moses, Moses, I want you to go and deliver my people. You're, my, you're the deliverer I've chosen. But you need to hear the words that God says. Because what I want to point out to you is while they're in slavery, they're already doing something. What are they doing? They're lamenting. They're suffering. And we know that they're crying out to God for deliverance. We know this because of what God says to Moses. Listen to his words, Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. I want to read this to you and we'll look at this. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up to that from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you, Moses, to Pharaoh, and that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. There are two things I want to point out to you. Number one, obviously, I already pointed out, it's obvious that the people were lamenting. And they were lifting up a lamentation, the cry of grief, the cry of mourning over their suffering to their God. How do we know that? Because it said God heard it. I have heard it. But God goes one step further. It's not just that God heard it. He already knew their suffering. Now we know that God knows everything. But listen to the words. I've heard their lament. And I know their suffering. This is a God who is acquainted at all times with the suffering of His people. He is acquainted with your suffering and mine before we lift up a word. But He also hears the lamentation from our suffering. But there's one step further. What does He do beyond that? He hears it, He knows it, and He acts on benefit of His people. And He sets Himself to deliver them through, I want you to hear this, not out of all the time, either through their suffering and possibly out of their suffering. This is God's heart. This is who God is. But what I want you to see here is a pattern 
because we're going to go through three different examples, and there are so far infinite examples I could use. On the example of the suffering of Israel in the wilderness, their lament to God, God acts on their behalf, and they grow from that. But what I want to show you is the pattern of the wilderness journey. We will suffer. The Israelites were suffering in Egypt. That suffering creates in the human person a lament, a cry out for help, a cry out for deliverance, a cry for mercy. If we're walking healthily, suffering produces a lament where we turn to God. We turn to God. God hears the lament. God already knows the circumstances. Well acquainted. He knows the grief and why it's there in our lives. God turns to act, deliver, walk through, put however you want. But God shows up. And the result of God showing up is that God reveals himself to his people. God reveals himself to his people. Now back in Exodus 7, when God, excuse me, when Moses finally goes to Pharaoh after the burning bush event, that statement I said a minute ago, he tells Pharaoh, let my people go that they may worship me in the wilderness. Now word worship is very critical for us to understand. Let my people go out of Egypt. This is God's desire. I want them to worship me. Where? But where? He doesn't say in the promised land. Don't be fooled. I want them to worship me in the wilderness. Anybody know the old English word that we get the word worship from? You've probably heard this before. Okay. We get it from this. The old English word is worth-ship. Okay? Worth-ship. Now, the Hebrew that we have when, when Moses tells Pharaoh, let my people go that they may worship me in the wilderness, that word in the Hebrew means let them go that they may, and I want, this, this gets a little difficult in the Hebrew for us to understand. We best understand it in the New Covenant in the framework of what liturgy means. What does liturgy mean? We've said this before. The work of the people. It's that which we do, but it's that which we do on behalf of who? God. We offer ourselves to God. Why do we do that? Because He is what? Worthy. He is worthy of all honor and praise. He is worthy of our service to Him. And in the Hebrew word, that word worship, let them come. Let them come out of Egypt. I'll bring them out so that they can worship me. Let them liturgy me. Let them serve me because I'm worthy. Let them offer service to me. Does that make sense? But that word worship is incredibly important for us to grasp in this context. And I'll tell you why. I want to ask you a question. Think about this. Can there be true worship of someone that we don't know? I didn't see, I didn't say no about. Can there be true worship 
If we don't know a person, can we weigh their worth? This is an incredibly important thing to understand. When God says, I'm bringing my people out of slavery, not to the promised land yet, into the wilderness, so that they can worship me. What is he intending to do in the wilderness? He's intending to reveal himself to his people. And if you remember, one of the first things when they get into the, into the uh, Sinai region, God doesn't call Moses to Mount Sinai. Who does he call? All of Israel. All of the Hebrews. He says, Moses, have them consecrate themselves and come to the base of the mountain. When they get to the base of the mountain, God reveals himself. What do the people do? They say, oh, no, no. Talk through Moses. We're not ready to deal with this. We're not ready to experience you in your fullness. You talk to Moses. We'll listen to him. And so God does. Don't think God didn't know where the people were. But what's the heart of God? I want all of them to know me. They weren't ready. Okay? But God brought them into the wilderness through the wilderness experience to get to know Him even through the immense suffering, and I would say especially through the immense suffering that they would go to during that time. Now, like I said, I'm going to go over very briefly, I think very briefly, we'll see, you know a priest. I'm going to try to go over very briefly three different, and I've chosen three different types of suffering that Israel was going through in their wilderness journey. And I want you, when we look at the story, each of these three stories, I want you to see if this pattern doesn't ring true in every one of them. There is suffering, like I said, there'll be three types of suffering. <coughs> There is the lament of the people. God hears and knows. He acts on their behalf. And because they see Him in action, they get to know Him better. Okay? So the first one. The first one's this. The very deliverance out of Egypt into the wilderness when they crossed the Red Sea. So God had already done the plagues. And the angel of death to release his people from bondage and slavery. Okay? So Pharaoh says, get your people out of here. Take them. Go. And they go and they make their way towards the Sinai region, making their way towards the Red Sea. But it says, listen to this. Does it say Pharaoh's heart got hard? No, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God had purpose in this. What does Pharaoh do? While they're off going towards the Red Sea, he gets his entire army, all of the chariots, and they pursue them. What happens? The Hebrew people find themselves with their back to a wet wall. They're at the Red Sea. They are surrounded by the Egyptians. There is absolutely no geographical way out. What are the people going through? Huh? Suffering. What kind of suffering? Um, scared, to die. scared to die. Yeah, what else might be going on in them? What kinds of emotions? Fear of death. Trapped. Trapped. Betrayal. 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 Thank you. Very good. There one I hadn't thought about that. About 
God's promise, <clears throat> excuse me, God's yeah. promise to them, are they going to receive it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and this early on, they're not. That's okay. Why? They're children. They're children. Children. They're going to complain. They're going to voice this lament in, in, a, in a childlike way. How about anxiousness? Terror? All of these things they're suffering with. Now listen to their lament. So they're going through suffering, and from that suffering, seeing what's about to happen to them in their minds, they lift up a lament to God through Moses. And here it is. And again, it's very... I'm hesitant to use the word childish. I use it just to keep the fact that they're very young in this experience with God. But I think you'll know what I mean if I say that. They haven't had a lot of direct experience with God this generation. You get that. So please remember where they are. So they lift up what I would call lament in an infancy stage. Here it is. Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than we should die here in the wilderness. Now we want to think, because we're so immature and we never spout off stuff like this to God, right? Right, yeah, exactly. Come on. Look where they are. They're just going with God. So let's be a little easier on them. What they did do appropriately is their suffering turned to what? A lament. And that lament through Moses was toward God. Now does God say, you foolish, foolish, infant people that have had no experience with me, go back to Egypt in slavery. I'll see you in about another 400 years when when you're cooked. Right? This is not how God responds to them. He steps right into their childlike lament. And what does God do? He hears it. He already knows what's going on. He was part of the whole plan. God acts and delivers. We know the story. The Red Sea is miraculously parted. All of God's people, the Hebrew, the whole Hebrew nation, thousands of them, cross through on dry land. The chariots and all of Pharaoh's forces pursue them into the dry land where the water is parted. Except what happens? God closes the water upon the enemy. Listen to the words that God gave Moses to say to the Hebrew people just before he parted the water. Because God not only hears their lament, He responds to it. He says these words, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of God, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall again see no more. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. And that's when he acts on their behalf. He tells them what he's going to do. And what does he do? Exactly what he said he was going to do. Do you think, in that instance, those Hebrew people moved a little bit from childhood to maturity? Yes. Do you think they moved all the way? No. That's not how it works. This journey 
this journey or this pattern of suffering, lament, God knowing and hearing, acting, and we see Him in our midst. We see Him with us in the moments of, of, of suffering, and He delivers us through suffering. The whole point is the revelation of God to us, which grows our faith a step. We're not done yet, so this is going to happen again, and again, and again. But every time we face suffering, what's happened? Is there better trust? Is there better stability in the life of the Christian? In the life of the one who is God's people? Right? Do you get that? So you see that pattern there at the crossing of the Red Sea. How about this one? Let's talk about a different kind of suffering. Let's talk about physical suffering and need. Physical suffering and physical need. By the time we get to Exodus in chapter 16, the people, they're done with whatever food they brought. Okay? In this wilderness. And there isn't anything in the wilderness for them to collect. So they have become hungry. What's their suffering? Hunger pains. But go further. When you get to a certain point of hunger pain, what else are you suffering? Malnutrition, anxiety, because what, what are you faced with? We either are going to get some food somewhere along this journey, or we are going to be buried here. And rather quickly at this point. This is where they are in their suffering. Now listen, we still have a childlike lament that is raised up to God through Moses. Here it is. This is from Exodus chapter 16. I begin in verse 2. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them. I'm not going to say that right now. Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Uh, Mind you, these are the same people that saw the water parted. I look at that, I almost said, I want you to hear the wine of God's people. But then again, and I'm joking about that somewhat, don't we do the same thing? How many times, how many times has God revealed Himself to us in the midst of any season, suffering, joy? And yet when suffering comes upon us or a stressful situation comes upon us, we knee-jerk reaction to the most childlike behaviors and voice from that. So you don't we? Yeah, you can nod your heads because I'll talk to you all later if you don't. We'll talk about it. But we'll be calling to talk to you. That's exactly correct. But it's true, and it's true with God's people here in this situation. So they let out this, oh, that we had died where there were pots of meat complaint. Right? That's what it was. But the reality is this. Nothing changed. They were really suffering. Anxious. Fearful. Destitute. And they still cried out a lament. Even if it was in the wrong spirit. You guys do understand that God has a way of correcting our wrong spirit. When we get to Job, you'll see that. And it's beautiful. Because God desires this. It's beautiful how God corrects Job. 
brings them to himself. So they lift up the lament. God hears, he already knows. God acts and delivers. What is it that God would do? How would God provide for their hunger all their days in the wilderness? Hmm? Manna from heaven at manna from heaven in the morning. Meat from the quail that he would provide at night, every night, every morning. Exactly what every single person of the Hebrews would need for that day. They have nothing. They're destitute. God acts. He delivers. Do you think he revealed himself by doing so? Do you think the next morning when they woke up and had all this manna right in front of them, God told Moses, tell them this was going to happen. The next morning it happens. Is your faith built? Is your trust not in an idea, but is your trust in a person growing because of something like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to give you one more example. And then I want to look at a psalm for a second to wrap up. The last example I'm going to give, we've talked about suffering by fear of death by an enemy that seeks to destroy us. Do we not endure that in our spiritual life? Sometimes in our physical. We've talked about a suffering that's physical, a physical need. So now, one of the things we had on the board last week when I asked you what type of sufferings do we endure, once somebody cried out the sufferings from our own sin. It's absolutely true. So why don't we take that as an example? and see the same pattern. You all know this story because I've mentioned it multiple times, but I want you to see it again for that very pattern and recognize what God is doing out of love for us. So now the people, I want you to understand, we are now going way forward in time in their wilderness journey. So they have, had, they have seen so much of what God will do. Because don't forget, every day, not only to get manna in the morning, quail at night, they're being led by fire at night and a cloud cover every day so that they are sustained through the wilderness by God Himself. They've seen stuff. So they have matured. You're going to see a more mature lament because of this relationship. Not that they won't ever fall back to childishness, but you're going to see a more mature lament in this. Alright, so the people turn literally against God. And in my opinion, one of the most offensive ways because of all that God had done on their behalf. Okay? The people start to complain. They get manna every morning, quail in the evenings... And they start to complain about God's provision. Listen to their complaint, their lament. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die? We're back to that again. In the wilderness. Our soul loathes this worthless bread. We get the, It's the same thing every day, every day, every day. Now, let me stop for one second. Do we do the same thing in liturgy every time we gather? Does He feed us the same bread? Are there times, let's be honest, are there times where we find our minds wandering that it becomes routine? So is there a danger for us in this same type, but even though we're not vocalizing and verbalizing a complaint, a lament to God, 
So let's be careful with how we judge them too far. Let's see ourselves. Okay? And be reminded of this incredible gift. Because the manna was a gift. The quail was an incredible gift. And they were saying, we loathe what you've given. So God, being a father of children, is going to discipline His children. But He's going to discipline them, and He always disciplines His people with one aim, and what is that? Not ultimately their suffering, but what He will do in and through the suffering that that causes that reveals Himself to them. So what He does, and you've heard this, He sends the plague of snakes. The plague of snakes comes, and they start, they start, the people are becoming poisoned. What just started happening? Yeah. They're suffering. They're suffering the discipline of God. But now listen to their lament because it's not as childlike as the ones you've heard before. Here's their lament to God through Moses. We have sinned. We have sinned. For we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Talking to Moses. Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. Do you hear the difference in maturity? God's discipline woke them up to all that they really knew about Him. They're suffering, but their lament, you know what it is? Lord, have mercy. Not, why don't you send us back to Egypt where we were fine? They're not saying that. We've sinned. Lord, come and rescue us from what we've done. Lord, have mercy. God hears them. What does He do? He tells Moses to fashion a staff with something that looks just like one of the serpents that He sent up on the staff. Put it in the midst of the people. When the people look upon it, when they look upon the staff, they will not only be healed of the poison, they'll be delivered from that which poisoned them. Now obviously a prefiguration of the cross. But what happened? They sinned. God disciplined. There was suffering. They rose up with a mature lament. God heard it, already knew it, and He acts and He delivers them, revealing Himself evermore once again to them. Last week, I told you, we're given the Psalter. The Psalter was there in God, you know, in the Old Covenant as well. And we've held to it in the New Covenant. The Psalter still stands. And the church teaches us to pray. Teaches us that the Psalter itself, all of the Psalms, teach us how to communicate with God, how to be with Him, and how to know Him. And I mentioned last week, the majority of the Psalms are not Psalms of praise. The majority of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. We had a Psalm this morning that just flashed what we're after today. And it's in a psalm that is lamenting. In fact, it's Psalm 80. 
And it followed Psalm 79, which is also a lamentation to God. But in Psalm 80, I want to start reading this a little bit. And I'm going to point out something that you're going to hear repetitively in this one psalm. Hear, O thou shepherd of Israel, that leadest Joseph like a flock. Show thyself also that thou sittest upon the cherubim before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Stir up thy strength and come and help us. Turn us again, O God. Show the light of thy countenance and we shall be whole. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with thy people that prayeth? Thou feedest them with the bread of tears and givest them plenteousness of tears to drink. Thou hast made us very strife unto our neighbors, and our enemies laugh us to scorn. Turn us again, thou God of hosts. Show the light of thy countenance, and we shall be whole. Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it, and so on and so forth. Are you hearing something over and over again? You're hearing a, a few verses of lament, but then a cry for something. Here's the cry. Turn us Not turn to us. Listen to the language. Turn us again, O Lord. Turn us again, O God. Show the light of thy countenance, and we shall be whole. That's said six times in that one psalm. That same sentence. We are human. We are existing in a fallen world. We have been given the Holy Spirit and joined to God. This is true. But yet the same principle is here. In this journey, we are going to lament. When we lament, here's what's happening. What suffering has produced, or if we will live as God desires and allow Him to bring us to that intimacy... When suffering occurs, we're going through life like this and God is over here. When suffering occurs, we turn to Him. That's the healthy thing. That's why it says, turn us, O God. Let the light of Thy countenance shine upon us. What does that mean? God, reveal Yourself to us. Right here, right now. And what's the result of that? And we shall be made whole. God brought them out of Egypt. They might worship Him. And the only way that God's people can worship Him is to know Him. And so He takes this wilderness journey filled with suffering. And He brings us to lament by His Holy Spirit that we turn to Him where He hears us. He already knows our suffering. He acts on our behalf to walk with us and through the suffering with us, revealing us, in, revealing Himself to us in ways He could not but for this time. Shows the light of His countenance. And what's the result? We're made whole by intimacy and union with God. Now next week, we're going to move even further with this same understanding of this pattern and start understanding how it is best that we can turn to God. And beyond that week, we start looking at Job and we continue looking at the Psalms to help us understand how to cooperate with God in times of suffering 
so that he can truly make us one with himself. Let's stand.